0: As you might well have noted in the previous statement about the reading taken from Colossians, the fourth chapter, as well as the statement in the bulletin about the title to this evening's lesson, and also by way of the announcement that I'd made last Lord's Day evening, we come to the concluding lesson in the series on Colossians this evening. As our journey through the four chapters have led us in that opening stanza of introduction to the closing stanza that'll complete the letter... We have been, in fact, faced with a whole host of ideas that I hope would have strengthened each of us in our walk with the Savior, to appreciate the matters in the city of Colossae, some 20 centuries previous, and also to appreciate that though the particular circumstances may be a bit different, nonetheless, in principle, we face many of the same difficulties, the same kinds of problems in terms of concepts. Some of those ideas, thus, may well be used as an introduction to this evening's lesson, That I've entitled stand perfect and complete. Throughout the letter, we have been reminded that its central theme has ever been the nature of Jesus, that its theme has, in fact, most clearly been stated by me on several occasions as the Christ of the church. In fact, it is, according to Colossians 2, verse 10, you're complete in Him. In Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, verse 3. Do we not read in Colossians 1 verse 10 that we should walk pleasing unto him? Finally, we might have noted in chapter 3 of this book how that those things that we are to mortify, that is to do away with, and also those things to be added to our lives are all in harmony with what we find in verse 16 of that same chapter. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Thus, it is the centrality of Jesus, if we are ever to have hope of having a pure heart, and to have the hope of, in fact, being with him forevermore. As I list for you on that sheet also before you, the wall, if you will, one of the things that we did note at the outset of the lesson last week was that this chapter, namely chapter 4, had a part of it to walk in wisdom, and we looked at the examples of two individuals who seemingly were doing that. One of them was named Tychicus, the other was named Onesimus. We read about them in verses 7, 8, and 9 last week, and we used that to say that this evening, in the final lesson of the series, we would look at a number of other individuals whom Paul mentions by name, and many of them are thankfully and wonderfully marvelous examples of those who were walking in wisdom, and who furthermore are examples of those who were standing perfect and complete. It's thus my hope tonight that as we close the book, we might be encouraged as we study again these individuals who were exact those who lived now some many years ago and that they can serve as examples for us. We will find that some of them made mistakes. Some of them had things in their life that they might well have regretted. But they did seem to persevere, endure, and proceed onward to live appropriately before God. And can't we each identify with circumstances like that? Without further ado, let's begin in verse number 12 where our lesson takes up this evening. Excuse me, verse number 10 is where we take up this evening. We closed verse 9 last week. I'd invite you to read with me verses 10 through 18, Colossians chapter 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister, son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are at Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphos, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you... Because that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hands of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. As we revisit verse number 10, we have the first of these individuals whom we shall encounter this evening a very kindly gentleman, it would appear, by the name of Aristarchus. As we make our journey throughout the New Testament and strive to put together as much as we are able to about these individuals as they are named, we shall be led on a rather beautiful journey in many ways, and that begins with none other here than Aristarchus. In fact, in the book of Acts, we encounter this gentleman not once but twice, In fact, he was the companion of Paul on the third missionary journey, listed verbatim by name in Acts chapter 20. As we make note of his accompaniment to Paul on the third journey, his appearance with the beloved apostle does not stop there. In fact, as the third journey came to its conclusion, we might also recall that he was also one of the very few companions with Paul on that rather disastrous voyage to Rome. When Paul was in conflict in terms of shipwreck, and when he ultimately came to stand before Caesar himself, he made the affirmation in Acts 27 that with him was Aristarchus. It's rather interesting then that we learn a great deal about this man. It would appear from that first mention of him in Acts 20, while he was accompanying Paul through Troas and the other cities on the third journey, he was a rather devoted and ardent servant of God himself. That very much is thus borne out by his voluntary choice, apparently, to accompany Paul on that voyage to Rome. Even though there seemed to be several companions who were with him on the third journey, not many are mentioned on the voyage to Rome. There was, of course, Julius, who was given charge to watch over Paul and to ensure that he made it safely to to Rome, the imperial city. However, in terms of those who would be servants, who would also be noted disciples of the Savior, Very, very few are named, but Aristarchus is one of them. Interestingly enough, now we encounter him here. He apparently was still with Paul while Paul was now a prisoner, not only having accompanied him to the city of Rome, but now perhaps also suffering imprisonment for the very cause of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is it not then fair to conclude that much notable and worthy and noble ideas could be said about Aristarchus? In fact, I'd ask you to note the word Paul uses yet again. Paul calls him his fellow prisoner. Could it be that this gentleman named Aristarchus was now in prison in Rome? Also awaiting an appearance before some magistrate, perhaps not Caesar, but some specific magistrate, who would have the authority to either release or to, in fact, sentence him to longer time. It certainly could have been. At any rate, he was a prisoner, it would seem, with Paul. Here in bonds in Rome, simply because he was a Christian. These things give us a great indication of the greatness of the desire on his part to serve Jesus, to be simply a disciple of Christ and to influence others in whatever ways for good that he could. You and I could be similarly encouraged today to appreciate that though we may be called upon to sacrifice, if it is for the cause of the Savior, if it is for the cause of the kingdom of God, it shall have been a worthwhile sacrifice. However, Aristarchus is not the only person named here. Verse 10 also makes mention of Marcus. Might we note again how he is described? He is sister's son to Barnabas. Immediately our mind races back to the book of Acts in which we gain so much a high appreciation of that gentleman named Barnabas. In Acts chapter 4, he is called the son of consolation. He was the one who specifically was given a name that basically meant encouragement. Barnabas was known as one who encouraged the brethren. One who was able by perhaps a smile or by other means and talents that he had accessible to him to encourage them over the pitfalls and difficulties of life and to aid them in walking faithfully with the Master. Who was it in fact who first introduced Saul after he was baptized to the apostles in Jerusalem? Paul, of course, at that time was known as one who persecuted the church, one who in fact imprisoned Christians. No wonder then the apostles were a bit concerned about him and what he might be able to do to them. It was none other than Barnabas who took the opportunity to personally introduce Paul to them and to gain the favor so that they would gain the acceptance of his preaching. That again was Barnabas. We now notice that Marcus, in the King James Version, is said to be sister-son to Barnabas. A better rendering from the Greek would have been to simply note that Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. To say that he was a cousin of Barnabas may well help us understand more thoroughly the scene of events that unfolded near the close of Acts 15. On that occasion, with the first missionary journey completed, Paul had the idea to revisit those congregations and to see how they do to quote verbatim his words of Acts fifteen thirty six, But there came to be a bit of a difficulty. After all, Barnabas desired to take John Mark with them. That's the same Marcus of whom we now read in Colossians, the fourth chapter. However, Paul did not wish to take Mark with them again, expressly because on the first journey, Mark had accompanied him as far as Pamphylia. But then he had departed and apparently had gone back homeward. For whatever reason it may have been, Paul did not think it worthy to take him again, perhaps thinking he would again desert them or perhaps again not complete the mission. But now we may well see why Barnabas was so intent to take him. He was Barnabas' cousin. However, did that particular idea thwart the work of God? Did it cause these two noble servants of the Master to each one cease to do that which they were able to do? Not at all. Barnabas did take Mark and they went to Cyprus and worked in that area. Paul took another gentleman whose name was Silas. He accompanied Paul throughout the entirety of the second journey and they of course did much work in Asia Minor and ultimately on into Europe. The work of God was not thwarted. Maybe Satan thought that he could in fact arise a contention or disagreement between Barnabas and Saul and perhaps by that to reduce the capability of the work of God but... His plan did not come to fruition. One of the lessons, it seems, that you and I can learn from that is the very idea that Paul makes note of here in Colossians 4. Though there may have been a time when Paul did not esteem the work of Mark, notice in chapter number 4 of Colossians, Paul makes note to that Colossian church, Mark sends you greetings. He salutes you. Mark was still a faithful servant, Paul apparently no longer had the same viewpoint toward Mark as he once had had. Doesn't that illustrate to us that individuals can change? They can prove themselves noteworthy as servants. Apparently Mark had done that by this time. Could we not also comment that that same gentleman, namely Mark, wrote the second book of the New Testament, the book of Mark that bears his name? As we read those things about him... Can we not come to appreciate that finally in him Paul also seemed to see the goodness of the work that he was capable of doing? And may you and I have those capabilities to see the work of others and what they are capable of by their talents and by their labors for the cause of the Master. In this very verse, you'll notice it closes by saying, Paul invites the congregation at Colossae to receive Mark if he were to come to them. Maybe he was planning a journey. Maybe he was planning to visit them in person. And Paul urges them, receive him if he comes to you. Verse number 11. We encounter our third person this evening. The gentleman of whom we read on this occasion is none other than the person named Jesus. But notice which is called Justice. The name Jesus, we of course immediately associate with the God-given name of the Son of God but might we remember that that word in Greek is the same as the word Joshua. And hence, that may well have been the more proper rendition of the word here. At any rate, he was also called Justice in verse 11. And do we not read that he was of the circumcision? This person, Justice, was formerly a Jew. He had ties to the law of Moses, an understanding of all the sacrifices and matters related to it, And Paul notes, he who are of the circumcision. The interesting feature about these that have been listed is that the plural verb are is utilized. It would thus appear that justice, it would appear that Mark, as well as Aristarchus all had ties to backgrounds in Judaism. But thankfully they now were servants of the Master. The law of Moses was that schoolmaster to bring one to Christ, and they came to appreciate that thought and did not cling tenaciously to that which had been nailed to the cross, Colossians 2 verse 14, and was no longer that matter in governing service to them. These thoughts alone give us a bit of an appreciation about these three individuals so named on this this occasion. As we consider verse number 11, though it does make another rather dramatic statement, These only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. The word only is a part of the Greek text. It would thus appear that others who may well at one time have been with Paul either had been sent on various missions to churches or at any rate were no longer by his side providing the necessary support that he desired, and were no longer there to comfort him as he would so much long to have had. Paul said these only are those which now are those that provide me with comfort. After all, Onesimus had been with him, but Onesimus had been sent back to Philemon. Others whom we're about to name apparently had missions to other congregations and churches. The fact that these alone were with him reminds us all about how often we need comfort as well. Satan has a way of bringing discouraging moments in life, and quite often he can bring many of them in a very small interval of time. It may seem we are heaped one after another with discouragement, with distress, with matters that tend to bring gloomy days to our heart. Perhaps Paul, as he here was in prison, found himself in a situation like that. He may often have been desirous to go and visit these congregations whom he so much loved, whom he had helped to to establish. However, that wasn't possible now. How often he must must have longed for the comfort that his fellow brothers and sisters were able to provide him. However, now so many of his companions had been sent away. As that verse leads us to the next one, we gain an appreciation of this person named Epaphras. We have encountered him before, but may we reread verse number 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. It would thus seem, as we appreciate the matter of Epaphras, at this particular moment, since greetings were sent by him, he apparently in the very near past had been with Paul, but apparently was not at this particular moment. For Paul again had said only these others were sending were able to provide comfort to him. One might well note that Epaphras is highly commended in the New Testament in every place that we encounter his name. Every instance describes him as a very devoted and ardent servant, one who selfishly or rather selflessly sacrificed so much for the cause of Jesus. Notice again the wording of this text. Who is one of you? It would seem that he was a member of the church in Colossae, but had made the journey from Colossae to Rome to be with Paul at one point. Along that way, Paul describes him as a servant of Christ. No greater accompaniment could be said of any of us than that, that he or she was a servant of Christ. And furthermore, he sends greetings, and he always labors fervently for you in prayer. Paul was aware of the prayer life of Epaphras. And to that Colossian congregation, he directly made note, this gentleman who's one of you, he frequently and fervently is in prayer on your behalf. Isn't it amazing to note the language that the inspired apostle utilizes? You and I may not be of a common disposition to view prayer as a labor, but yet Paul says he always labors in prayer for you. Is prayer thus a tremendous work of faith? Certainly it is. Is prayer thus a dramatic and powerful means by which the work of the gospel can be performed and accomplished? Absolutely. For can we not remember that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much when we bow our heads in prayer and when we thus share forth the thoughts of our heart, believing, of course, that which we're praying, that God shall hear and answer, Great good can be accomplished. And Epaphras fervently labored for the church in Colossae. But not only that congregation, as we shall see in a moment in verse 13, For I bear him record, that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. The labor thus of Epaphras in the region of Colossae apparently extended to Laodicea as well as Hierapolis, and these two cities were not distant by any stretch of the imagination. One was only less than 10 miles away, the other a bit more, but both certainly less than even 20 miles distant. They knew about Epaphras. They appreciated his labors, and apparently his influence was rather dramatic. Notice, he has a great zeal for you. The rendering of the Greek text perhaps might have been better to say that he labors much for you. Epaphras was very busy, though he was in Rome, on behalf of the congregations of Hierapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Are you and I thus able by our prayers that we may be personally distant to be a betterment or an encouragement to a congregation some distance away? Surely we can. We can pray for their elders, for their preacher, for each one of them in particular, that they might remain faithful and strong. It would seem Epaphras powerfully did that for the congregation in Colossae. These points we've noted through verse number thirteen encourage us to perhaps revisit the closing thought of verse twelve. One specific note about the prayer life of Epaphras: that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, as a Christian and as a disciple. Would there be any better idea for which one could pray for a congregation than that? That they might stand perfect and complete doing all the will of God. It would be difficult to find anything for which one could better pray than that. Do we not gain a feeling that this gentleman named Epaphras was a very loving and compassionate person, concerned about the souls of those brethren and sisters in the city of Colossae? It certainly would so appear. And as I mentioned in all the other places that his name is mentioned, Paul had the highest and kindest regards for him. It would be fair to note that we too should have a desire that ourselves, our own physical families, and our spiritual family as well should stand complete and perfect. And that word complete in the Greek means perfect, and that word perfect means fully assured. How strong is your faith? Are you absolutely certain of those things of which you've heard? The inspired writer Luke, when he penned that letter to that gentleman we know as Theophilus, the book of Luke, he stated in Luke 1 verse 4, "...that thou mightest know the certainty of the things of which thou hast been instructed. You and I should have the fullest assurance and the finest of confidence in those things of which we've been instructed, those things revealed in the Word of God." It was Epaphras' desire that this church in Colossae would similarly feel. With that in mind, let us look further at some other names listed on this occasion. In verse number 14, we encounter another person who wrote a book in the New Testament, Luke, the beloved physician. At this point, if we merely pause and notice that Luke also sent greetings to that church in Colossae, It would thus appear that Luke was at least again in the vicinity of Rome, perhaps in the recent past, having been there. As we think about Luke, we often are familiar with calling him a doctor. Where in all the New Testament do we learn that he was a physician? It is in the text that we just read. In the book of Luke, he is referred to in many ways. In the book of Acts, he is referenced in many ways, but only here is he called a physician. Throughout the book of Luke, as we encounter the things that are used to describe him, we gain a crystal clear envision that he was a person familiar with the practice of medicine. For he lays a special emphasis on the miracles of Jesus and the medicinal way that they take place. But here, Paul tells us he was a beloved physician. Notice also that Demas is herein mentioned as well. If we pause to ponder a bit about Demas... Could we not ask, where else is he listed in the New Testament? He is only listed some three times. One of them is in this place. We also encounter another in the book of Philemon, a third in the book of Second Timothy. It is a rather sad saga concerning Demas, I must confess. In the book of Philemon, he is called a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier with Paul. He who apparently at one point was a faithful servant to the Master, on this occasion in Colossians 4.14, he is not described other than his name is mentioned. He isn't called a fellow soldier. He isn't called a fellow prisoner. He is not complimented in any way. However, he is not specifically reprimanded either. But when we come to 2 Timothy 4:10, we finally learn that Demas had forsaken Paul, having loved this present world. He had turned aside from the faith. He had apostatized. Apparently, the Christian life demanded more than he was willing to give. He had been beside Paul for a while. He had seen the imprisonment that it brought to him. However, upon Paul's second imprisonment, when apparently from that one he never would be released and his head was severed from his body, apparently that was more than Demas was willing to sacrifice, he departed from the apostle, as far as we know, never to return. We can only hope that simply no record of that is given and finally he came to his own senses and appreciated the importance of remaining faithful throughout the remainder of his life from that time forward. Perhaps again, one more comment about Luke. As a physician, he was a very learned man. We sometimes gain the feeling that so many who are of high education in this world, education of great secular matters, so often are those whose faith is weak if it exists at all. Quite often they have an atheistic viewpoint or at least those that are antagonistic to some extent, being agnostic to the faith. Might we notice the New Testament teaches us about a very learned man named Paul, a very learned man named Luke, both of which were ardent servants of the Master and remained faithful throughout life as far as we know. In fact, Paul could state himself as he closed his life, I have finished my course. I fought the good fight. I have, in fact, been faithful. He knew about a crown of life awaiting for him, and not only for him, but for all those that love the appearance of the Savior. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 8 perhaps these thoughts help us see that it's not necessary for a person of learning to be an agnostic or an atheist. That person can use the talent of learning to better the cause of the Savior for their life in great defiance of truth. In fact, that should be our goal as we encourage our children to perhaps use the education that they're able to accomplish, but to never use that to allow them to drive a wedge between themselves and the faith. For ultimately... They shall give account one day before God and then secular education will have been meaningless. It shall not gain one entrance into heaven. It shall not keep one out of hell. It shall only be the great knowledge that one has made use of and the faithfulness in life with the character of the gospel. With Luke and Demas mentioned in their greetings in verse 14, might we notice in verse number 15, we see something interesting. Interesting. Salute the brethren which are at Laodicea, and Nymphos and the church which is in his house. We see that Paul urged the Colossians to greet the brethren that are at Laodicea. As we have mentioned, those cities were not far apart. And as the brethren in Colossae could send greetings to or share greetings with the church in Laodicea, we notice Paul urged that. Additionally, Nymphus is named. As we encounter this name, there seems to be a bit of unusual circumstance surrounding the way the King James translators have placed that before us. And Nymphus and the church which is in his house. Apparently, this gentleman named Nymphus, as he is listed in the King James translation, was a person who hosted the meetings or the assemblies of a congregation, either at Colossae or somewhere nearby. That very thought alone leads to the following interesting point. The Greek text is not nearly so certain that he was a male. In fact, it would seem that the word nymphos is itself feminine in character and the adjective that precedes the word house is also feminine in Greek. Thus it may well have been that this person was a female and yet she hosted the assemblies of a congregation in the vicinity of Colossae and in so doing was perhaps in the same line as the wife of Aquila, whose name was Priscilla, the same line as we read of in Lydia in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. If indeed that be the case, what a noble servant she must have been, aided very much like the writing in Romans 16, verse one, where Phoebe is mentioned in language not unlike this. The thought about her in verse 15, Perhaps leads us to see something also in verse 16 that relates to the same idea. The church that met in that house, that was a day in time long before there were church buildings that you and I are so accustomed to assembling in today. Here, the church by that time, though it was well established, there still wasn't nearly the monetary funds to allow the construction of church buildings. Thus they met in homes, they met in various public places perhaps, similarly to that situation is before us here. And then in verse number 16, And when this epistle is read, among you cause it it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. The circumstances concerning this epistle is such that Paul penned this letter to that church in Colossae, but bade that it also be shared with the church in the city of Laodicea. Might we pause and note again this, the closeness of those congregations, even though it was a day long before the car or other means of transportation like that. Nonetheless, they appeared quite often to share means of encouragement. Is it thus right for congregations to encourage one another today in all other ways, of course, that are scriptural? Certainly it would be. Here we can see that one other thing is noted. Paul also encouraged the church in Colossae to read the letter he had sent to the church in Laodicea. We, of course, do not have that letter preserved for us. In the New Testament, there is no book of Laodiceans. Rather, we encounter books like Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to preserve that letter to the church in Laodicea. mean, We might well appreciate the fact that, of course, we ought not be concerned or bothered that we shall be judged on the judgment day by something in that letter. Peter was able to say that we've been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Second Peter 1 verse number 3. Thus, we should appreciate that it was the plan and purpose of God, that that letter served that purpose, but there was not a need for its preservation so that it become a part of the New Testament canon. That letter to the Laodiceans, did it say some things that were similar to the letter of the Colossians? Perhaps. Did it contain other things that would have been specifically needful and useful for them? Almost certainly. It seems relatively easy to see from the book of Revelation that the church of the Laodiceans was having difficulty already. Remember, they were the lukewarm church. Jesus said, I wish you were cold or hot, but you're neither one. I'll spew you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Perhaps already they were beginning to feel those matters of less than ardent service to the Master, and they needed even then to be encouraged. We certainly know that it was that way by the time John wrote them in Revelation chapter 2. Finally, we might notice in verses 17 and 18, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. With regard to Archippus, we again encounter a person who is not often named in the New Testament. In fact, the listing of his name on this occasion is such that it's a rather interesting point. He is mentioned only one other time as far as I know in the book of Philemon. And in that book, we learn, together with this one, something dramatic about him. Notice here that he had received a ministry from the Lord. What that ministry was is difficult to say. The Philemon letter hints that he may well have been the preacher for the congregation in Colossae. We can't certainly be dogmatic about that, but it may well have been. If that were true, we notice Paul here encourages this individual Whatever the work that he was able to do, Paul encouraged him, take heed that you do it. We certainly shouldn't conclude that he had been derelict in it, but rather that he was encouraged onward by the letter of Paul. Continue on in the faith. Do that service of which you're capable and able to do. Because notice, he was needful to fulfill it. That reminds us that we each too have a talent a skill, a capability, a ministry that we're able to function and perform. That may well be unlike that which any other person in this congregation has. If that work then is to be done, you or I with that capability need to do it. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 reminds us that each of us should minister with the grace and gift given to us. What I'm able to do is not what you're able to do and perhaps vice versa, but together together. We can function as described in 1 Corinthians 12, where every member of the body is as needful as every other, and we each, by the capabilities given to us, are not able to thus say that any person is not needful or necessary, but rather even the most uncomely members, Paul says, have the most comeliness. Thus, in the congregation, all of us, working together to mutually edify one another and accomplish the work of the Savior, can redound unto great glory for the cause of the the Master. That's the charge to the pipping congregation and yea to every other congregation with regard to their membership. Thankfully, we can thus, under the leadership of our elders, proceed to set forth the example of righteousness and holiness and to strive just as Archippus was urged to do to fulfill the work given unto us. As Paul has labored to make these matters known, he closes the book then in verse number 18. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. We're accustomed in our day when we write a letter to sign it at the beginning of the letter. However, it wasn't the case that way in that day. The letter was typically signed at the end. It may also have been mentioned at the outset as well, but notice here Paul says this is from my hand. The salutation sent he does make one final beseechment of them, remember my bonds. Paul was a prisoner when the Colossian letter was written. He desired that they remember him as we noted in Colossians 4 last week in verses 2 and 3, praying that he would say and preach the right things and that there would be a door of utterance open to him. Paul thus asked them, remember my bonds. We appreciate from as near as we can tell from the New Testament letters, Paul ultimately was released from this imprisonment. And yet for some few years thereafter preached in the areas of Europe, even as far as Spain it would seem. However, the time came he would be imprisoned again. As the letter closes, grace be with you. Amen. Paul sent to them that matter of grace. In the Greek it's the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. And it's a beautiful word. As we think of all the grace that God's wonderful grace brings to us and the grace that we are able to share one with another, Paul beseeched and made statements that grace indeed be with you. In the closing thus of the Colossian letter, we've been reminded of many things that are as needful and pertinent today as they were 20 centuries ago. And that the false teachings with which they faced lead us to conclude maybe the letter by some very overarching thoughts about the entirety of it. It has been a wonderful study. It is a part of the Word of God. It is one of the briefer books in the New Testament, but yet it is packed full of ideas and precepts and concepts that have challenged us also in our faith, though it was written some 2,000 or almost 2,000 years ago. As the encouragement has thus been shared with each of us, I've listed some of the major things of which we might keep in mind. This was a masterpiece at refuting that Gnostic heresy that was so much troubling the Colossian congregation. Paul had dealt with it forcefully, but yet lovingly. And as he dealt with it, he urged them to practically apply the concepts thereof so that they could live appropriately and rightly before the God of heaven and thus set a powerful example before all those about them. As far as the central figure of the book, it wasn't Epiphras or Tychicus or Luke or Mark. It was the very one whom all of them were serving, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this evening, are you and I faithful servants of His as well? Have we structured our life around Him? Is He the centerpiece and the hub of all that we do say and think? We should strive each day to so conduct ourselves thusly, that he would be honored. unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The closing verse of the third chapter of Ephesians. Tonight, as we each examine ourselves whether we be in the faith, Second Corinthians 13:5, may we use the statements and wording of First Corinthians 13:7, that we strive to build one another up and to do that noble and proper this evening. If you need to respond publicly to the invitation, we would certainly invite you to do that just as the Lord does as well. If you have never become a Christian, the G- Jesus demands, requires of you that you hear His Word, believing to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and to be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done that, let this evening be the evening. If you have, praise be unto God. Walk faithfully till death if you need to ask for prayers of rededication, for prayers of strength, there's a room full of brethren and sisters who would be honored and lovingly willing to pray on your behalf that you would be strengthened. If we could assist you in either of these ways, let that be known publicly if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.